Good morning, my name is Melinda Carlson and our reading is from the book of Genesis chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make your, you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please, Give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms, 
weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. The word of the Lord. So let's pray. Dear God, we do come and thank you that you know our strengths and our weaknesses, our needs, our joys. And as we gather together, we do it together. And we, we lift each other up that we each would be met by you this morning. Again, we hope it is through your word, but it also would be other pieces of what we do this morning. And we ask again that you'd cover the children and the teachers that just left this room. In your name, amen. Amen. Okay, by a raise of hands, raise your hand. Who here likes a romantic comedy movie or story? Okay, romantic comedy. That's a low turnout. I'm a little surprised. Let's try one more time. Who likes a romantic comedy? Right, this uh, week I walked through Barnes & Noble. They have a whole section that was called You Had Me at Rom-Com. Whole set of books that they're selling. Think about famous romantic comedies, right? So... Um, if I said Mr. Darcy and Miss Elizabeth, what story am I thinking of? Pride and Prejudice. Okay, if I said uh, Sam and Annie, this one might be a little harder. Sam and Annie takes place in a city especially. People get tired. Sleeps in Seattle. Very good. Okay. If I said uh, Laura Jean and Peter. Some of y'all not young. If the, if the high schoolers were all here, they would get this. To all the boys I've loved before. Right, that's what that is. If I said an affair to remember, that's, of course, Deborah Carr and Cary Grant. Such a classic, personal favorite. Rose and Jack from Titanic. There's big stories now because George Clooney and Julia Roberts are about to be starring a movie in a couple weeks coming out called Ticket to Paradise. And the big story about that is, well, they haven't done a rom-com together in so long. Right? Now, if you think about a rom-com, each one has components that are common, right? So particularly the initial meeting of the, the couple, and what do they call that? So the meet cute, right? Okay, so when they met. Maybe if you're here and you're married or you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, you can think about what was your meet cute? You can talk about, do you remember? The, one of the good jokes in our marriage is, I remember our meet cute and my lovely wife doesn't, which is really humbling. That's the husband. <laughs> okay, so there's things in a rom-com that are common, right? Like the meet cute. But then there's also things that are unique, right? Like, the city they're in, the ages they're in, the particular obstacles they have to overcome. Uh, come. But there's always dramatic tension, right? Dramatic tension. What if Elizabeth doesn't ever hear about what Darcy has done for her family? What if Cary Grant never learns about what happened to Deborah Carr on the night they were supposed to meet? What if Annie never goes to the Empire State Building? And as we continue in our series in Genesis this morning, we turn to the longest scene in the entire book, of Genesis. And if you like romance, you're in for a treat because this is romantic. You just heard 27 verses. This is the first time in the Bible we hear someone loves someone else in a romantic way. If you read all the way to the end of chapter 24, you'll hear Isaac described the way he um, loves Rebecca described that way. 
And this story, of course, has lots of dramatic tension. And it's not just a love story. It's a theological tale, right? The commentator we've quoted a lot here, Bruce Walke, says, this masterful romance tale is a theological reflection on divine providence, on God being faithful to his covenant, which is the theme we've been in again and again and again in the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible and can turn with me to Genesis 24, could be, again, a hard copy or a phone. As we do, I just want to make a couple quick comments. Um, last week, you were told that I'm coming on staff at Christ Church Vienna, and I hadn't had a chance to say anything about it. Uh, thank you very much. That's real sweet. I feel the same way. Um, I have such a deep fondness and affection for you already. Right, so several people said, oh, so what do you know about the church? And I laugh. I'm like, well, we know each other pretty well, which could be hard for you. I don't know if you heard the news. But I do have such a deep fondness and affection for this community and this ministry and for Johnny and Sarah. So I'm delighted to be coming and looking forward to the next few months and weeks and years together. Um, And one of the things I'm going to ask you to do this week in the weekly email is to help me get to know you a little bit. So we'll repeat it in the email, but if you could maybe prepare What I'm going to ask you to do is to reply to my email, which is dean at ChristChurchVienna.com, later this week with a few sentences on who you are and maybe a way, something going on in your life that we could know about or I could pray about. And if you can, send a picture. Because I'm a visual person. I'll remember your names after I remember your faces and maybe what you were wearing the day we met. So if you could maybe think, how could we do that? I'll keep The prayer requests will keep between me and Johnny and Corky. But if you could be ready, that'd be great because it'll help me get up to speed and sort of begin to attach, oh, this is Joe Smith. Oh, that's who Joe Smith is and what they do and how I can be praying for you. So just a, a prep for this week. Okay, Genesis 24. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. I love this text. There's so much going on here. And again, a quick reminder, what's, what's Genesis doing? It's inviting us to trust the God who provides that we see leading and guiding the patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel. Last week, we looked at Genesis 22, Abraham offering Isaac to God and God providing a lamb. What we said was, again, these these affairs of perplexity. And I quoted John Calvin with that phrase. There's a slide here to help sort of remind you, jog your memory. We pay God the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to his providence. And we even at the end of the service, remember, some of us stood up because we're in the middle of affairs of perplexity now. And if you ever have been as a man in a relationship with a woman or a woman with a relationship with a man, you know those can be affairs of perplexity. So this text is a good invitation, again, to keep that theme going. Genesis 24 is the first of what we call a type scene in the Bible. The Bible has scenes that repeat themselves through the narrative as God works in his people. For example, anybody hear of a scene in the Bible where a woman is barren and we don't know if she'll conceive? Anybody be able to think of maybe more than one? Anybody here has seen in the Bible in Genesis, actually, just in Genesis, where a patriarch passes off his wife as his sister? Not once, not twice, three times. And Genesis, a little sidebar, never goes well. So like a romance, a rom-com, or a Western, these type scenes have themes, consistent patterns that happen over and over. This is a betrothal scene. And in these betrothal scenes, they often happen at a well. Okay, so like a rom-com has things that are the same and then unique, these are the same and unique. Genesis 24, Genesis 26, which will be Jacob and Rachel. Exodus 3, which will be Moses and Zipporah. These consistent ways God works. 
Now, a lovely man, a Jewish scholar a few years ago named Robert Alter, wrote a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative. And he began to look at it as, what, it's art. What do we do? And he began to pull and realize all these type scenes. And he says this, a coherent reading of any work of art, and for sure this text and this passage is a work of art. Whatever the medium requires some detailed awareness of the grid of conventions upon which and against which the individual work operates. For example, if you're watching a rom-com and you see a meet cute and you know that's a convention, you go, ooh, that's the meet cute, something happened. In a well scene, there are these things that are happening. And for the audience and the author, he is letting you know these things are familiar circumstances and you go, oh wait, this is a, a betrothal scene. There's a well and there's a young maiden and there's all these things happening that lets us know something's happening. Sometimes things we expect are omitted. In our text this morning, there's things that are normal and omitted. And those things have meaning. So if I, let's say instead we were looking at a, at a Western and there's a character dressed all in black and a character dressed all in white, you're going to assume the character dressed all in black is good or bad. And you're going to assume the character dressed all in white is good. What if the character dressed all in white is the good guy? Well, that's taking a type scene and something you're familiar with and flipping it on its head and pulls you in and begs meaning, right? You're like, oh, that's different. I don't understand. So in a betrothal scene like this, common themes include a bridegroom or his surrogate travels on a long journey to a foreign land. There he encounters a girl, a maiden. The Hebrew word is almost always the same, this word maiden, or girls at a well. Someone, either the man who's traveled or the girl, draws water from the well. After the water is drawn, the girl or girls rush home, and it's always rushed to bring the news of the stranger's arrival. Then finally, after that arrival, a betrothal is concluded between the stranger and one of the maidens. Does that sound like what you just heard? And Genesis 26, if you know the story of Jacob and Rachel, and the story of Moses and Zipporah. Our betrothal scene has four parts. There's the beginning, Abraham and the servant talk. Then there's the servant and Rebecca's engagement. Then the servant and Rebecca's family, which you didn't hear this morning. And then Isaac and Rebecca at the end. Parts one and four, there's the problem and the solution. And parts two and three are all dramatic tension. The problem here is Abraham was promised descendants. It's actually the same problem we had last week. Last week, it's begged because, oh gosh, Abraham might sacrifice Isaac, the one descendant he has. We're about 25 years later. Isaac here is about 38 or 39. And he doesn't have kids. Oh no, just when we thought this whole descendant thing got sorted out, Isaac doesn't have kids. Isaac's mom, Sarah, has passed away, so he's grieving her passing, as is Abraham. And as we learned last week, to have a, a nation rise up, you need land and you need seed, you need descendants. So Isaac needs a wife. Now, God's going to solve this problem. He's going to use himself and earthly means to get this done, right? Abraham and the servant. Can God sort out the affair of perplexity of Isaac needing a wife? Yes, he can. And he's going to do it by he sends the servant, right? The servant who is heading out in faith. He travels about a thousand miles. Okay, so that's Marion Osborne emailed me last night with this great image. It's like going from here to Pittsburgh and back and then doing it again. It would take months to do that. He's taking camels. If you know camels, they're not fast animals, right? Doty, 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 doty through the desert, okay? 
He's traveling on behalf of Abraham for months. He arrives to this town that he's never been in. Now, what's he do? He prays. Dear God, who I've seen provide for my master, Abraham, help me find a wife for Isaac. Then he says, here's the sign. May it be a maiden who not only gives me a drink of water, but waters my camels. Now, what we see is, again, God's been at work. What does the text say? While he was still praying, Rebecca shows up at the well. It's the evening. That means Rebecca had to, at some point of that afternoon, get dressed, make a decision to walk from wherever she lives, to go to the well. There's things happening the servant doesn't even know. Clearly, she's been prepared by God. She is related to both of Abraham's brothers. She's a maiden, that phrase again. And she's clearly very hospitable. What do we know about Abraham? One of his marks of virtue is he's so hospitable, he, earlier in Genesis, welcomed in God, unawares, and angels. Here's an incredibly hospitable woman who's going to be his daughter-in-law. She doesn't just water give water to the servant, what's she do? She offers to water the camels. Notice the servant doesn't like put his finger on the scale and say, hey, can you water me and my camels? He leaves that gap open for God to fill. He hasn't asked for his camels to be filled, but she does it anyway. Do you remember how many camels there were? Okay. A camel will drink about 25 gallons of water to get filled. A gallon of water weighs about 8.3 pounds. And the buckets they would use carried about three gallons of water. It would take roughly eight trips per camel carrying 25 gallons, 25 pounds of water to, do, to, to water each camel. That's 80 trips down what was probably a big hole with some stairs to scoop up three gallons of water, carry it back up the stairs, dump it out for camel number one, head back down. It probably took one to two hours to water the camels. Not a hose, not a big Yeti bottle that she dumped out. Okay, so this is like Rebecca's CrossFit workout. <laughs> if you read again the verbs, she's active, energetic, boom, boom, boom. She's a remarkable woman. Really, really one of the heroes of this story. Then, after she's done, the servant is overwhelmed and he worships the Lord and he pulls her into the worship. And he tells her this story, which would, think about, you're probably a 17, 18-year-old young woman and you hear this amazing story. This, this relative of your, your um, relatives, Abraham, you'd heard about left town years ago. He, my gosh, has a son. He's wealthy. Camels are rare there. And to have 10 camels shows this guy is like driving a Rolls Royce into town. And he wants, I'm looking for a wife. And I ask God to provide in a certain way. And you're it. Your head would blow off your neck. It's amazing. She runs to tell her family. Laban, her brother, comes and gets the servant. They come back. They negotiate. He tells the story again to pull them into the grander narrative of God. They say she must go. We find out the next morning. We didn't, again, read these verses. Laban and his mom try to get the servant to stay. They like this grand story, but they also had their own thoughts. We'll learn about Laban a couple chapters later. It's a little bit of foreshadowing there. Rebecca says, no, I'll go. She's known the servant, what, like 20 hours? They pack up. She gets this lovely blessing by the women of the village. They send her out. And at the end of the chapter, she sees Isaac. They marry. And it says, and Isaac loved Rebecca and was comforted because he's so sad about Sarah. It is, a, it is a stunning scene. I'd encourage you to go home and read the whole thing. Faith, trust, obstacles, dramatic tension. 
love, romance, character, virtue, God's provision. And I wanna wanna extract two major things out of these verses this morning. First, I wanna look at the characters that we have because this set of characters is phenomenal. And then I wanna look at the beauty of the narrative, characters and what they can teach us and the beauty of the narrative and what it can tell us. So this again is like a play, really strong characters. One scholar says it's a novelette. And in this, we get two kinds of stories with the characters. We get redemption stories and we get cautionary tales. Redemption stories are people who are like, oh, we might want to be like them. Cautionary tales are like, oh, good, those are warnings for us. And there are three redemption stories in this lovely chapter. I bet you could figure out what they are. The first is Abraham, right? Abraham, remember Abraham in chapter 12? Leaving in chapter 12, he left home, he trusted God, but he also tried to pass Sarah off as his wife in Egypt. Remember Abraham and with Hagar, creating his own plan, a way to provide the descendants. Now here's Abraham at the end of his life. This chapter has the last recorded words of Abraham in the Bible. And what they are is, in verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. The Lord, the God of heaven, he will send his angel and he will provide. That is what's happened in Abraham's life. This is a man who has stood, tested, risked, trusted, failed, got forgiven and got back on the horse to follow God. And now at the end of his life, he is saying, God will provide a wife for Isaac. I've seen it happen. My wife was 90 when she had a baby. He's going to find a wife for my almost 40-year-old son in a land far, far away, and I don't know who she's going to be. But you and the angel Lord are going to go and do this. Many of the prayers and colics you'll hear us pray over the years talk about, and Lord, help us be faithful to you until life's end. Well, this is what it looks like. What faith? The faith we saw in Genesis 22, God will provide a lamb, is the same faith in forming his life. God will provide a wife for Isaac. So Stunning, stunning. So Abraham, I love Abraham here, but I really love the servant. What's the servant's name? Probably Eliezer, Genesis 15. Eliezer of Damascus is his head servant then, but it's been decades, so he might have passed away. But if we're gonna guess, that's what we would, would guess. But the narrator particularly does not name the servant. That is absolutely important. Again, normal things and abnormal things. In betrothal scenes, normally you know who the surrogate or the bridegroom is. Jacob and Moses. Here, the servant's unnamed. And he's amazing. I'd like to know his name. I hope in heaven he has at least a name tag that says unnamed servant because if he has his regular name, none of us will know who he is. Again, this guy travels for weeks on behalf of Abraham, hundreds of miles. He prays and invites God in. Says, Lord, here's my plan. It's what I'm gonna try. Would you please bring about, be faithful to what Abraham said you would do. This is the first time in the Bible somebody prays for wisdom and help in a particular situation. Anybody this week pray for wisdom and help in a particular situation? This is, this is the first Like the recorded biblical first of anybody doing that is this guy. He worships the Lord. He's so resolute, he pushes back on Laban. 
He's so focused on serving his master that when the next morning Laban comes in with a, hey, stay for 10 days. And that's an ambiguous phrase. Commentators say, could have been stay for 10 days, 10 months, 10 years. No, he's not having any of that, is he? He's faithful, he's strong, he's humble, he's prayerful. Cross-reference that with chapter 26 and tell me what, come back next week and tell me what does Jacob do before he meets Rachel? This guy's a ninja. He is such a hero. And the text particularly says, this is what it looks like to serve. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be amazing if you and I were like that? So dedicated to serving the master that we didn't, our name didn't even need to be known. The whole story's there, but it's never attributed to him. I'd love to be somebody like that. It reminds me of Psalm 84. Better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Right? This guy's like a doorkeeper, but he's so delighted. And he will not be pushed off his task. Amazing. Amazing guy. So Abraham and Sarah, and then, or excuse me, Abraham the servant, and then Rebecca. Rebecca is phenomenal in this story. She is amazing. Remarkable, remarkable. We are touched again already on her overwhelming hospitality. Now that marks her, well, that should be in all the city, whoever's going to be attached to Abraham, it ought to be her. Because she, of her own accord, decided to do the 80 trips of water for these 10 camels. I might have been like, can you do five and I'll do five? And they're your camels. I just met you. I don't know you're related to me. I don't know you're related to Abraham. I don't know there might be some sort of real great reward in it. And this whole energetic field, there are four verses here describing Rebecca with the camels. There are 11 verbs of action and one of speech that describe her in those few verses. This is the only betrothal scene where the maiden draws the water. Again, go back and look at the Things that are different, things are unique. Then she's the one, the next morning, she's given a chance. They're again trying to negotiate their way to leaving. Well, let's let her decide. And you know Laban is hoping she'll say no. She says, no, I will go. She's heard this grand narrative twice, that God is doing something, and she's willing to leave her homeland. Who do we know in Genesis who left their father's house and their known Friends, and the city they were in to go do something and be blessed of God to be obedient. Abraham. Of course this should be Isaac's wife. Nobody else in the world should be his wife. Her name actually sounds like the Hebrew word for blessing, which is barakah. And later in the Genesis story, we're going to see her use that same action and energy to be faithful to the covenant. It's a very complicated story, Jacob and Esau. But the energy and the vitality and the quick action we see here to be faithful to a blessing for the way God wants it is the same sort of drive that's going to happen in that story. So, Rebecca, total biblical hero. If you're looking for a biblical hero as a woman today, Rebecca is your girl. Crossfit, 25 pounds, the whole thing. Just a remarkable woman. So three redemption stories and then again, two cautionary tales. Two warnings in this beautiful novelette. First, of course, is Laban, right? Like we know, the, the, if you know Laban later in the Bible, he's just a, something you can't say in church. 
I mean, he's such a pain in the neck, right? Constantly motivated by money and his own self-interest. He sells his one daughter, essentially, for, and to, to get more work out of his soon-to-be brother-in-law. If you read that story in Genesis 26, you'll see him come to Jacob and propose this. Hey, I see you love my daughter Rachel. Why don't you stay? But he says, well, you've been here a month working for free. Jacob's uncle Laban had already worked him for a month for nothing. Before he's like, hey, work for seven years. I'll give you Rachel. Actually, I'm going to give you Leah. Then I'll give you Rachel. And then I'll moan 20 years later when you leave with the rightfully earned sheep you have. All of that coming up is in this scene because Laban sees the bracelets and then he leaves. And he gets so moved by God that he's open the night, the night to say, sure, she should go. But then he thinks about it and he's like, maybe I can stall this guy. Okay, we don't know it then, but if we knew in 24 what we know in 26, we'd say, get up and leave now. Don't even listen to the proposal. Get out of there while you can. I think that's Rebecca knew her brother and she's like, no, we're out. There ain't no staying around. We are gone. And part of what the text is doing is, of course, begging the question of you and I, who do we want to be like? Do you want to be Laban? Motivated by greed and your self-interest? Excited about God's story, but maybe just going to work it out your own way? Or do you want to be like Abraham? Or do you want to be like the servant? you want to be like Rebecca? And then the final cautionary tale in this is Isaac, which is, it's painful in this text. Because if you look at the type scenes, it should be the bridegroom going to the well. And what his dad says twice to the servant is you may not take my son with you. You may not take him from Canaan. Part of that is because of Abraham's utter dedication to the land and staying in the land. He's actually just buried Sarah in the land, which is a very public way of saying, this is where I'm going to be. But the other reason that we know because we see Isaac as he goes is because Abraham does not trust that Isaac would come back to the land. He's not shown the moral character to be faithful and hold fast to the covenant and the blessing when it comes to obedience. And that's going to come up later when he has sons and he plays favorites with one and will not listen to God's prophetic word over the other. And the beautiful piece of art we have here, when you look at the scenes, you realize, shoot, the bridegroom ought to be there, but he's not. And he's not because he can't be trusted to be a part of it. Isaac is the most passive of the patriarchs. And in this scene where he's getting a wife, He's very passive. A wife is brought to him, right? Again, he's 39 years old and not married. He's still grieving the loss of his mother, who's great and worth grieving, but he's 39 years old. And his dad has to find him a wife. It's not, it's not a great look for Isaac. So again, how... What, what a, the, the chapter begins with Abraham, his dad, utterly holding fast to the covenant and then the son being provided for because God is faithful, but begging questions about will Isaac be as faithful to the covenant as Abraham? And if you keep reading, sadly, you'll see no. God really has to move in and step in. So who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? See the common things and see the gaps that are supposed to beg our imagination and, and our own wrestling with, Lord, who are we? 
the characters and then just briefly again on the beauty. I've touched, unpacked some of the beauty as we've talked about all this stuff already. But see again how God is so faithful. This is a lovely passage on, if you wrestle a bit with like, what part of it, my life should be trusting God and, and being still and waiting on him and what part of my life should be taking action? Because this text is actually a lovely integration of those two things. You see human and divine actions working together. God's gonna fulfill his promise, but the servant still has to get out of the camel and go to the city, right? And this, the, the servant has a lovely plan. He doesn't just sit at the well with his hands in the air going, okay, Lord, drop her from the sky. He said, Lord, here's my plan. I'm, I'm gonna pray to you, and then I'm gonna wait till a woman comes up, and I'm gonna approach her and ask her, which was vulnerable and kind of nuts. He's not dressed in normal attire. The writer's wrestling with the interplay of human responsibility and divine action. And what we see is this great phrase of Martin Luther writ large, God works through means. And so often, you know what the means are? Everybody raise your hand. You and I are the means. Maybe there's something in your life right now and you're like, Lord, I just need you to anoint my ideas and energy. I've got ideas, but I need the energy of Rebecca and the, the action of the servant to move in this way. Could be something at work, could be something about loving your neighbor or loving your enemy, could be something with your kids or your spouse or your friends or your family. This is this great quote I love by Kent Hughes. God is not simply a God of miracles who occasionally ingests his power into life. How many of us have ever prayed that way? Like that's who we assume God is. No, he is far greater because he arranges all of life to suit and affect his provision. This makes all of life a miracle. God is over all. Again, we so often pray, all things come from me, O Lord. All of life. So maybe this morning you're in an area again, you're feeling stuck and you need to ask God, Lord, give me the energy to trust you're gonna provide. It actually took more trust in God's love to leave and send the servant because it was vulnerable. We actually learn what's happening at the end of this chapter is Isaac's becoming sort of the active patriarch in the text. Abraham's gonna live 35 more years after the end of chapter 24, but he's gonna fade from the scene with that last great phrase in trust in God's provision. But now, What's being invited is I'm still going to act and trust in the Lord and, and move myself. So as we close, just a couple questions about your and my stories, right? Because we belong to the same God, the same artist yesterday, today, and forever, which means God's crafting your story as beautifully as he's crafting Abraham, Isaac's, the servant, Rebecca's, even Laban's. Is there again an affair of perplexity that you need to offer to God like Abraham's doing here, trusting God will provide? Is there a character in the story who compels you or repels you, positive or negative, that you might want to pray as we go to prayer? Lord, help me be more like, and you can pick one of the characters, or help me not be like. Maybe if you're not sure for yourself, you, there's someone you can think of. You're like, oh, I, I appreciate this person that they're an unnamed servant in my life, and you want to extend a thank you to them. Or maybe the Lord has been raising up an heir. You have an idea you want to take to God and go, Lord, I, I feel like I should do this unto you and I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to act. And I'm feeling stifled because I'm not sure if I'm allowed to act or if I just trust you to do everything. Help me know how to live out like this servant, this lovely integration of what being a means for you looks like. Maybe you want to pray about some of that. So let's pray. Dear God, again, thank you for your word and thank you for the 
the beauty, the stunning beauty of it, and for these type scenes, and as I read them and see these characters, I see my own frailty and the things that I can note about Laban, I can sure note my own weaknesses. And I can look at places where I want to know how to act and feel stifled or where I want to hold fast to you providing for me and like Abraham does, but I'm not sure how or where I want to be named, not unnamed. And I just offer all of us to you. Again, we sit with you and pray that you would guide us from the beauty of this that's been handed down to us. You wanted us to know this story and to know these things. And I pray for my friends here especially who may feel daunted by the affairs they're in, who may wonder if you would ever provide, who might look at this and say, well, that's great for Abraham and Isaac, but God's not showing up for me that way. I pray they will learn as we all want to learn from Abraham, to hold fast to you, no matter the circumstance. In your name, amen. Yet not I, but through Christ in me.